the Navy leadership reacted all the way up to the top. The CNO, the Chief of Naval Operations, said, this is the best strategic plan we've ever seen. And they said, how can we support you? What can we do to make it possible for your faculty to do all these things? This shift of moving away from the plan as a bunch of ideas that a committee cooked up and maybe some operational steps that would might get us there. We shifted that to the plan as a set of offers from the faculty to do things that take care of Navy concerns. And when we did that, we got a plan that was exceptionally well received and came with counter offers like, how can we help you do this? See where you're making offers, where other people are making offers, and you will be surprised at how few people are actually making offers, what kind of power you have when you make offers. The last time Peter Denning was here, he introduced us to a simple and transformational bit of writing, the Beginner's Creed. And just as that bit of text served to transform the experience of learning for so many of us, and of his computer science grad students at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California, so does his message today have the ability to transform the way we work together to create. Peter sits down with Howard Teibel to talk about innovation. But this isn't about the tools or technology behind today's latest and greatest inventions. That would almost be too easy. Instead, Peter and Howard break down the nature of the promises we make to one another our offers to others, and our ability to deliver on them. In this light, innovation is a distinctly human skill of leadership, attention, and communication that can be sharpened. And now, Howard Teibel, with Distinguished Professor of Computer Science at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, Peter Denning. Welcome back, Peter, to Navigating Change. It's great to have you again. Well, thank you. I know when we finished last, you and I talked about taking the next step and having a further conversation build off what you invented, which I have shared with many of my clients, the Beginner's Creed, the gift that keeps on giving. And if you haven't read the Beginner's Creed, I invite you to get a copy of it off of our website. We'll, we'll share that. You teach at the Naval Postgraduate School of Monterey, California, in the computer science department, and you have graduate students. They've graduated from the undergraduate experience, and now they're paying attention in a different way. They're in their mid-30s or so. And I wanted to have a conversation with you that is broader than what's happening in your classroom. I think that what you're teaching and what you're engaging people in around innovation has great relevance to not just students who are going to go out in the world and make impact, but for teachers, for administrators, about how do we bring innovation to our work? You know, Howard, I spend a lot of my time talking with my students about computer science topics, notably operating systems and artificial intelligence. But I also spend a lot of time talking with them about their own leadership, their military officers. They aspire to be leaders in the Navy or in the Marine Corps. They live in a world where they're under a lot of pressure from the Navy leadership to be innovative, to accelerate the pace of adoption of new useful technologies into the Navy. And they feel that that's part of their mission. And I'm trying to help them do that. 
when you and I were having a pre-conversation for the for this podcast, we spoke into this question about what is innovation. What you said is that you framed innovation as emergence of new practices in a community. First of all, I would say that one of the reasons that I and my colleagues formulated this alternative definition that you just quoted was that the common definition, the common understanding just wasn't working. People want innovation. They think innovation is all about inventing ideas. That's what they do. They invent ideas, and then they watch and see that very few of them get adopted. And they wind up feeling frustrated. They wind up feeling ineffective. They feel like they're not able to do their job. They can't be a leader. This isn't just our students that feel this way. A lot of people feel that way. I've been in many meetings where a common reaction was that, you know, my boss said, please put innovative ideas on the table. It's your job. And that's what I did. I spent a lot of time putting a really cool, innovative idea out on the table. The group discussed it briefly. And then after a discussion, they didn't select my idea. They selected the idea of that jerk down at the end of the table. It was <laughs> the stupidest idea I ever heard. And his got selected over mine. And I don't know what the heck happened. Mine was the better idea. I could clearly demonstrate that. So I, I'm not able to do the job my boss wanted me to do because of that. What the heck is going on here? So from that repeated experience and you observing that, led to a different way of thinking about innovation. First thing I said was, what is the current way of thinking about innovation? And the current way of thinking about innovation is the invention of new ideas. So we call that the invention point of view about innovation. You go listen to managers and corporate executives and they say, you know, we've got loads of ideas that we could choose from, but we don't have enough resources and people to explore every one of them. So we have to pick and choose. Just because you created an idea doesn't mean it's going to produce an innovation for us. This led me to ask if creating ideas is not the end result that we need, what is the end result? That led me to the idea or the notion that the end result is that people are actually using your idea in their daily work, in the way they go about doing things. And I call that in their practice. So they're using it in their practice. And my job as an innovation leader is to get them to adopt the new practice. When you see that happen, when you see my community engaged in a new practice, you can say for certainty, Peter accomplished an innovation. And that's what we want to have as the outcome. It didn't say Peter had an idea, but Peter got the community to do things differently. Often when we see an innovation show up, we don't know how that happened. We might know the forces that contributed to it. You know, a good obvious one in our, in our larger community is Uber. If we step into this making something possible, this is so relevant, Peter, to people who are trying to not just become more efficient in education on the administration side, but to be more able to provide better value to students and faculty, and value often shows up in a certain kind of innovation, but not necessarily it has to be sexy. It has to be relevant. Talk about what this adoption of new practices in a community, what does that mean? How do you orient people to that being a way of inventing something that could be relevant for a community? 
That's a good question. The The way I like to think about it is that for new practice to be adopted, in other words, I use the term practice as kind of like a technical word for the way I go about doing things. My normal everyday set of habits and routines, not just mine personally, but shared with everybody in my community, the way we all go about doing things, all of that is my practices. And I call them practices because I do them, but I mostly don't think about them. So they're not thoughts. They're not ideas. They're me doing things. I think you've used the word embodied for that. When I embody something, I do it, and I do it without thinking about it. So when I say my community adopted a new practice, that's what I'm talking about. They change the way they do things. They're not even thinking about it at all. They're just doing it. That's what I'm after. That's what we call the emergence when that happens and people are doing things differently. Now we could say the innovation has occurred. My concern is not just on the ideas, but on people using them and doing them, putting them to work. You've also mentioned relevance. Uh, and I think this is extremely important that people will not adopt a new way of doing things unless not only is it relevant to what they're trying to do, but it actually takes care of concerns that they have. So in other words, they're concerned about doing something and I've given them a new way to do it or I've shown them the possibility of a new way to do it. And now they start creating practices around this and do it this new way. So unless there's a concern there, that I'm speaking to, I kind of fall on deaf ears. I can say, here's a great new practice for you. And it turns out you're not concerned about that. Nothing's going to happen. And you had a great example for me around strategic planning. Let's just think about this for a second. Um, so we have this notion that we want to have our community shift, engage in a new practice, and they won't do it unless my offer to them takes care of something they're concerned about. Yes and seems to be highly relevant and valuable to them to do do this thing the new way. So my job, if I'm trying to produce the emergence, if I'm trying to get people to do it, my job is to make them an offer that basically they can't refuse. Right, right. right? The reason they can't refuse it is because I'm offering them to take care of something they care about. An uh, example of this is uh, telling you this short story of... Uh, project we did here at postgraduate school starting about a year and a half ago to create a new strategic plan. You know, every every university wants to have a strategic plan. I've been around others where they spent a lot of time and effort putting together a strategic plan. When they finished with it, it was a great big, thick magazine, uh, you know, polished colors, diagrams, everything handed it out to the whole community, handed it out to the, the supporters of the university, the alumni and everybody. And all of those copies went into the, the lower right drawer of a lot of people's desks and were never seen again. The reason is that none of this, the strategic plan seemed to be relevant to anybody. It was something that the administration wanted to do. So we went along with them and we did it, but it's otherwise meaningless. And the only reason we did it is because we want to make sure that we have our ore into the water and they didn't leave us out. So later on, we'll be very unhappy if we got left out. So we played the ball just enough. So if someone says, what's your strategic plan? You could at least say we have one. Right. Yeah. And you don't want to be left out and you want to be left alone so you can do whatever you're going to do anyway. Let's get back to work. 
here, we started this project for a strategic plan, and it actually kind of began that way. I was on the committee. The committee said, well, here's some high-level themes, for example, artificial intelligence in weapon systems. And they had a list of about seven or eight of these kind of themes. The provost uh, held a couple of town hall meetings to present those themes to the faculty and get the reactions. And what he got back was a large, a very loud amount of yawning, <laughs> deafening yawns. Okay. He, he wants a strategic plan that the faculty are going to embrace, which everybody wants. So we got back in the meeting and I said, what's missing here is we're not making offers. And we as the community of the faculty, you're not asking us to make offers to the Navy. So an offer would be some, some simple things like, I'm an expert at artificial intelligence. I offer to start up a project to investigate uses of artificial intelligence in drones. What that means is if you back me, you the, being the administration, if you back me, I'm going to do that. You can count on it. I'm going to, I am making you a commitment right now to do that if you back me. And you can back me in a number of ways. You could give me some money. You could introduce me to a federal agency that wants to sponsor my work. Uh, you can show me to the uh, foundation and maybe some of the alumni want to sponsor my work. There's a lot of ways you could help me, but I'm committed to do this if you back me. So I said to the committee, maybe that's what we need. Can we get our strategic plan to read like a set of offers from the faculty? Mm. These offers would speak to Navy concerns. They would be offers that the Navy leadership would welcome. The shift here is moving from here's what we want to do to what concern are we addressing an existing concern already in the community we're trying to serve? That's a big shift. Yeah. So it, well, what we did, the provost liked this idea. We came up with topic areas where the uh, we know the Navy leadership is concerned about. One of them is artificial intelligence. We went out and had town halls where we invited faculty to come and talk to us about what we could do in each of these areas. I think we have we listed 12 different areas finally, and we had 12 town hall meetings, and each one of them was attended by anywhere from 25 to 60 faculty. We have 200 faculty here, so this is a pretty substantial faculty turnout. And they told us what they would like to do, and, and the ones that sounded like powerful offers made it into the plan. When we got all done with this and distributed the, the, the plan, the Navy leadership reacted all the way up to the top. The, the CNO, the Chief of Naval Operations, said, this is the best strategic plan we've ever seen. And they said, how can we support you? What can we do to make it possible for your faculty to do all these things? This shift of moving away from the plan as a bunch of ideas that a committee cooked up and maybe some operational steps that would might get us there, we shifted that to the plan is a set of offers from the faculty to do things that take care of Navy concerns. And when we did that, we got a plan that was exceptionally well-received and came with counter-offers, like, how can we help you do this? We talk a lot about buy-in and getting faculty buy-in or administrative buy-in. Buy-in is a pretty low bar compared to having people show up and in the end be in a position where they've made commitments. Buy-in is a way of reflecting back and saying, yeah, they're in this. We have got them to buy in. What, what I see you're doing is that example 
was the mechanism for being able to say that people have made commitments and those commitments are an expression of buy-in. No, I wouldn't wouldn't say that at all. It's buy-in to me is a intellectual exercise. Well, the kind of commitment I'm talking about is I make a commitment that's in my heart, in my body. I want to do it. It's going to get done. It may not even be totally intellectual, but you can count on me. We need to get buy-in. What you're hearing them say is what? We're going to persuade them to go along with us and let us do our thing. Thank you for pushing back. When we get buy-in, we're fundamentally saying we've convinced you to go along. Right. And, but you haven't elicited a commitment from me. You know, that's not going to get that's you good. anywhere. I want you to... I'm going to stop talking about buy-in. You've just taught me something. <laughs> Seriously, this is fantastic. I hear people talk about buy-in, and I think that that is a, is a weak way of representing moving the needle forward. Because you don't have any commitments behind it. I started off by saying that what you're doing in the classroom, what you're teaching these graduate students, which ultimately they're going to take out into their military careers, is about how they can show up differently in this conversation, be able to make uh, offers that address a concern in the community. What are some of the areas you explore with your students? And I know this, there's a lot to talk about here, but just give people a flavor of what these practices are that lead to being able to make these kind of powerful offers. Well, I think, first of all, I'd say many, most offers are powerful. You just have to make them. The surprising one thing that surprises me is the large-scale amount of reluctance that I see People come into meetings or they come into the groups and they are reluctant to make offers. And I think that they're, they're reluctant to make offers because they are somewhere afraid that there's a commitment or responsibility attached to making the offer. If somebody accepts their offer, they're on the line. They've got to do something. Not sure that they want to make that commitment, so they don't make an offer. They'll make sort of bland statements like, it would be good if we recommended so-and-so. Or it would be good if somebody did such and such. But they don't say, I offer to put together a task force to explore how to do this. Or I offer to organize a lunch where those of us who are interested in this topic can come together and come up with some things we can do. I don't know. Maybe we also have a misunderstanding of offer, like we're going to put some big thing out on the table and you're going to pay for it or something like that. That's what an offer looks like. But no, I'm saying an offer can be a relatively small thing. Like I, I'm offering to bring together a bunch of people to have a conversation around this issue that we don't know anything about and see if we can learn anything. You know, I go to a lot of meetings and people are sitting around saying things that would be good if we recommended. Nobody in the meeting will say, I volunteer to do something. Or I offer to do something. So the person who does that, they're going to have great power in the meeting because nobody else is doing it. The other barrier to making offers is that if I make an offer to you, I don't necessarily know the how I'm going to get it done. And I may lack a certain level of confidence in myself that I'll, I'll be able to navigate some of the uncertainty. And I think part of what people want to know is they want to have certainty they could do something successful. If I make you an offer and I don't have everything figured out, 
I'm at risk of failing. And I think that's another contributor to why people are reluctant to put things out. If you said yes to my offer, I will do the following for you, Peter. I will, I will do a program for you, Peter. And I don't quite know what that program looks like yet. I got to trust myself enough that I'm going to be able to execute on that. Otherwise, I, I look even more foolish. Yeah, I, I think it's a perfectly good offer is to say, I'm going to convene a conversation to figure this out. You know, it's funny you say that. I, I'm with the deans at a major, major research university. And what I'm saying to the academic or the administrative leadership is, you don't have to lead with your expertise. You don't have to come in with the answers around the, the way the model should look or the business model. Can you be the leaders of convening the conversation and making an offer or an invitation for a conversation? And I'm just seeing how people are sitting on their hands because they're afraid that they don't have it figured out before they make that offer. They have to know more. Howard, you know, this goes back to that beginner's creed, what you're just saying. We could say, you know, this is this thing we need to deal with is new. We don't know much about it. Nobody here has enough expertise to answer the question. We're all beginners. So let's get together as beginners and have a conversation, see if we could figure this out. Yeah, but you know on the academic and administrative side. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen it. To to be able to tell somebody, look at them straight in the eye and say, Can we acknowledge in this area we're beginners? That is a hard thing unless you have deep trust. People don't want to admit that in a public way. Mm-hmm. It takes the lid off of this, this way that we're pretending that our expertise is everything. And I've struggled with how to have that kind of conversations, for example, with a set of deans or with a, a group of faculty. Can we take off our expertise hat for a minute and recognize we're beginners and how we're going to navigate this problem. People often don't want to step into that conversation. So I'm curious how you get people to open up around that. You know, the simplest thing I could think of is say, I want to learn about this. I'm going to bring some people who are knowledgeable about this. We're going to have a conversation together, and the purpose of it is I'm going to learn something. Mm. I'm not declaring myself to be the expert who wants to teach you something. I'm not declaring myself to be the expert who wants to inform you about something. I'm saying, I want you to uh, help me understand something, then you know more about it than I do. People like that. So they're willing to have that conversation because I'm not threatening them. I'm not trying to upstage them. I'm not trying to claim my expertise is better than their expertise or anything like this. I'm simply saying, I want to try and figure something out. Uh, I need your help. You guys know a lot about this. I think we put our heads together. We can come up with something good. A, a colleague of ours, Lampros Fastest, once said to me in a meeting with a group we were working with, can we have a conversation about something? This is to the group where it's okay that nothing comes out of it. Mm-hmm. Because I think in the background, people are evaluating whether they're going to participate in something with I'm only going to participate in something if I can see the outcome, right? But, but maybe we have to give ourselves permission to be in conversations where it is really okay that in the end, nothing came out of it, except we learned it, this is where it took us or it didn't take us anywhere. And I, something that's interesting because that's about giving ourselves permission to be in conversations that could end up being irrelevant. 
Mm-hmm. What are the eight practices that you teach in your program? You we'll go back to the beginning here when we we're talking about what is what does it mean to have emergence of new practice in a community? That's that's our definition. Yes. We've written about this in, in my book with Bob Dunham called The Innovator's Way. And there we talked about eight essential practices that the innovation leaders actually engage in in order to bring about adoption. Okay. And and I can just rattle off rattle their off. names for you. They're, they're sensing, envisioning, offering, adopting, sustaining, executing, leading, and embodying. You know, normally when, so I was listening for the arc of these, and it seems to me these do not, they're not linear. They're related, they're interdependent, but they're not, it's not like you start off with sensing and you end in embodying. They're relevant to each other in different ways. So these practices, it's almost like these are tools in a toolbox, right? And in a given situation, you may have to step in and make an offer. There are these ways for people to be having a different level of awareness around how they move something forward. Yeah, I call them navigational skills. Yes. With these skills, we're able, we, we know we have a general idea where we want to get to. And with these skills, we can actually get there. Take, for example, the first one that we mentioned, sensing. This is all about being able to listen to your community and find a way that you can address a concern they have. This this is a listening skill, and uh, it turns out a lot of people don't know how to do it. So we, we think we know what a concern is, but we actually don't know what the actual concern is. So you, if you ask somebody, what are you concerned about? They'll, they might tell you something, but then again, they might not even know exactly how to say what they're concerned about. All they know is something bothers them or something concerns them, but they can't put it into words. Right. So your job is to find out what it is that they can't put into words and you put it into words. And then you can tell if you're successful because they'll say, that's it. If you can do something about that, I'm in. You know, versus the, you know, listening with your ears. You just, you know, it's like what I'm discovering more, Peter, is that in the listening, you know, if you talk about, if I make a request of you, it's not that you heard it. It's like, how are you paying attention to my concerns? And can you articulate back to me the concerns that I may not have even spoken? As opposed to what we typically do, we've been trained, I think, from a very young age, is you'll say something to me and I will nod my head. And I will walk away and say, I have no idea what he just asked me. Or... I think I know, but I never really got in there and listened for the concern. And I, so I think it's a great example of a skill set that can be practiced. And once you have that, right, so then the person goes, oh, that's it. It's exactly right. Let, let, me, let me just add a personal footnote on that. Is, um, this technique that's called active listening, where you, somebody says something and you try and repeat it back to them. Is, is to me a very mechanical kind of technique. I could do it with a tape recorder, and I don't want to be a tape recorder. I want to be a committed, involved person who actually cares about their concern. That's how I want to show up. I don't want to show up as an automaton 
that's repeating back what they just said. I want to show up as a guy who actually cares about them and how life is, how their work is. I'm genuinely concerned to offer them something that will be helpful to them. That's how I want to show up. I love that distinction because active listening is a, it's not just mechanical, it's in many cases could completely avoid what the concern is. Right. So, so I think that's a really good insight for our listeners to recognize the difference between listening for concerns and being able to repeat back what the person said, which is how we've typically been trained to be better listeners. Right. All right, more tidbits. This is awesome, Peter. You're on a roll right now. What I like to think about is in terms of possibilities. Yeah. So possibility is uh, a sense that I get that something is possible. I think we've all had all know, all had our own experience of what it means when a possibility shows up and we have this feeling in our body that something has become possible. And what do we do with the possibility? Often we get drawn to it, especially if it has something to do with something we're concerned about, something we care about. We get drawn to the possibility. We want to move into it. And that's the kind of sensation that I look for when I'm talking to people trying to understand their concerns. When I we talk and, and, and possibilities start showing up in the conversation. Which ones are they drawn to? And those are the possibilities I want to work with. I don't want to work with possibilities that don't draw anybody to them. The conversation may expose possibilities that I didn't even suspect. I try and let myself be completely open to that. Like, oh, there's, there's something these guys want to have happen. And I think I can help them do that. And it takes care of my interest in helping them do do it. But it's not exactly the same thing I thought of originally. Right. Developing this art, if you will, and being able to listen for when possibilities show up and when are they attracting you to move into them. And when are the, more importantly, when are they attracting your community members to move into them? And do you have a mutual attraction? Does this possibility bring all of us towards it? And when that happens, we're onto something. There's something we can work with. So let's try and work with that. Yeah, you know, I'm struck by this, the role of the leader in this. Because very often I see that if you train them to have good conversations in a group and train them to listen for concerns and tell them we're not going to solve today, but really going to navigate a conversation and see what can allow the value to emerge, mm-hmm. that often doesn't lead to action. And, and what, what I see often stopping is that we have leaders who are in the room, who don't know when to say, all right, now we're ready to move forward. This has been a great conversation. Are we ready to move forward? And when that person exercises that move, that allows us to recognize we've got something and now we're ready to take action. And in in much of my work with leaders and with their teams, there's a strong focus on trying to get as many voices on the table to speak up and just looking for what should I move forward with where I will likely have the greatest amount of uh, of agreement. And we often don't even get to that move of where a leader is willing to make a declaration. I've heard everything. It's been a fantastic conversation. Let's move this forward. What's your sense of the leader's role in moving from sensing all the way to adoption? I have a, an answer that depends on my having been in a lot of faculty meetings. Now, I don't know whether that's a typical audience, 
faculty meetings are always rather difficult. But I, what I find is, is exploring, listening in the meeting from where the possibilities are that people want to gather around. The only way I can bring that out often is to literally go around the table and point to each person and say, well, what do you think? A lot of them will speak up, and some of them can be very eloquent, but they don't speak up on their own unless you create the opening for them to speak up. And that's not just faculty meetings. Yeah. Now that everybody's had a chance to speak, you actually get a really good sense of where the possibilities are. You need to sometimes explicitly go around the table, look the person in the eye, each person, and say, what do you think? Yeah. And once you've done that, there's still a move that you need to make, which is, all right, now what? Once I'm pretty sure, I said, I'll say something like, looks like this, here's a possibility we can work on. It. And you know, the people nod their heads. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And I said, so let's work on this one. And I might, depending on what's, what, you know, well, who's going to take responsibility, it might be, I'm going to take responsibility to convene a subgroup of this faculty to look into this issue and report back to us. Or, or I might go a little further. I might say, uh, does anybody volunteer to lead that subgroup? Right. Somebody might raise their hand and say, fine, you're, you are the chair of the subcommittee. So what I'm now trying to do is produce actions. So I can do that. I can make a declaration about what direction we might head. I can make a request to somebody. Would you be the chair of the subgroup to look into this for us? Um, I can, make an offer myself to do it. I'll, I'll convene the subgroup to look into this. A lot of moves I can make, but every one of them is a move that carries a commitment by somebody with it. So it's either me making a commitment or somebody in the group making a commitment. And that's where the action comes from, is they make the commitment to say, I will do it, and it comes to happen. What you just described as those moves brings us back to offers, right? I mean, in the end, I think one of the key takeaways that I walk away with is a greater awareness of, am I making offers in a space where I want to make something happen rather than waiting for some circumstance to change or for, it's it's interesting, I'm not even sure what I'm waiting for. Uh, And and you're right, we, we all could be, if we're paying attention, could be be making more offers. And my sense is the more we do this, the more we realize that this is how we can move things forward. People can always decline. But I I, I think not only are you on to something, this is some this is a this is a missing skill that most people have don't have in, in the workplace is recognizing the power they have to make offers, even if it's as small as I will organize the lunch. You said to me the other day, you know, start with, I will organize the lunch. And next thing you know, down the road, you're looking back and saying, I'm the COO or I'm the second in command because I kept demonstrating my capacity to make offers and executing on them. So we talk a little bit about power. It's a wonderful way to build power in a group. Yes. Is to make offers. It could be really simple things. Like I'll organize a lunch. I'll I'll bring some crackers and cookies or something. I'll call up a certain person and ask them if they'll come and be a speaker at our seminar. 
all these things, these seemingly little things, they're easy to do, but you're making an offer. And when you fulfill on it, you've just won a few credibility points with your group or with your boss. And before long, you've accumulated some power and you might wind up, as you just pointed out, being the deputy of, of the, the group or something like that, or yeah. second in command. Right. And you look back on it and say, well, how did you get there? Well, I just kept making offers and kept accepting them. And the next thing you know, here I am. The third, the third person that's looking in, the management consultant might say, well, this person built social power by making and fulfilling offers. Yes. But, you know, so that's, a, that's kind of a detached you know, intellectual description. Right. But I'm talking about the person feels involved and keeps willingly raise their hand to offer to do things. And in the process, because nobody else is raising their hand, they wind up being taken as the guy who gets something done. And that's what a leader does. is a person who gets something done. We started about innovation. People say there's misconception about innovation. I think it's more like we have different views about what innovation is. And, and, and often we look at innovation as things like things that show up in the world, like Uber or Airbnb, and we can point to the Amazon. But I think what you've done is you frame innovation as a way that you can, as an individual, as a group, start to move things forward. And it doesn't live in the object. It lives in the development and adoption of these new ways of, of showing up or practices. And, and the innovation is what it is. It could be small, it could be large, but this is more about the habits that we're developing, not the objects that we're creating. The one, my way of looking at it, the, the objects are tools that support practices. And so, you know, when I present you with a new tool, it may open up a possibility for you that wasn't there before, and you might start using the tool because you're interested in that possibility. So you change your practice in order to be able to reach the possibility, and the tool has helping you get there. And that's fascinating. Then you think about Airbnb. Airbnb is the object, but the practice is how we, you know, t- a practice of taking vacations, right? And Airbnb is an example of a tool that we can use as part of that practice of mobility and taking vacations. So the the Airbnb platform is a tool. Yes. The practice is the making of and and, uh, engaging in these exchange transactions, the back and forth offers between somebody who wants to rent and somebody who has a place to rent. I call that an exchange transaction because I have to make, they've made an offer to rent their place and I show up and say, I'll accept your offer. They might vet me to see if I fit what their basic requirements are, that I can pay the money, all these kind of things. And when we reach an agreement, now the offer is fulfilled. I get to, to rent, the renter gets the money, but an, an Airbnb as a company, gets a little share of the money that got that changed hands. Okay, but the the real thing that's happening there is I'm engaging in a practice back and forth with with a, a, a somebody facilitated by the tool to rent their house. I think what I'm taking away from this, Peter, is a deeper appreciation of the importance of making offers 
that have multiple positive benefits. One, to be able to move something forward. Two, to be able to exercise and develop a certain power in a community. Uh, and three, to remind myself that it's that it's it should be focused on or maybe always on offers that are addressing not just a concern that I have in my head, but a concern that exists in a community. And and what you have done for me in this conversation is something I knew of, but you have a way of expressing it simply. And it and it it's something that I think we can all take into our worlds and explore more with others. So so that's that's a key thing that's top of mind for me. And also the distinction between the the innovation as objects, you know, as opposed to the innovation as inventing new practices that lead to something showing up differently in the world, which is things like Uber and so on. So that, that was, those were my takeaways. Anything for you, just in hearing yourself or in this conversation that you got from this? Just would say for, for our listeners, go practice making offers. Nice. You can do it in simple steps. Like next time you go to a meeting, just sit there and listen and watch if anybody makes an offer. And I think you'll be surprised that in most meetings, there are very few offers being made. And people get bored with those meetings, including you. And you can also try when, when somebody in the meeting has brought up a possibility that you feel strongly about and you're drawn to it, raise your hand, make an offer, do something, you know, even something simple like organize the conversation, organize the lunch to have people talk about that thing. Very simple. Love it. And I, so I would say practice that. Observe. Sit around. See where you're making offers, where other people are making offers. And you will be surprised at how few people are actually making offers and what kind of power you have when you make offers. That's a perfect way to end this. So again, thank you, Peter. And we've got so much more to talk about. We will post on the podcast page uh, links that you want to share with folks. And again, thank you so much for doing this again and, and being the thought leader that you are. Well, thank you. Bye-bye.